The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by Alumni Ventures. Invest with confidence. Discover the power of venture investing with Alumni Ventures, America's largest venture firm for individual investors. Learn more at av.vc. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, at number seven in our countdown of last year's most popular book bites, as chosen by our discerning app users, we have Chatter, the voice in our head, why it matters and how to harness it by Ethan Cross. The voice in your head yaks it up about half the time you're awake, and it can speak at an astonishing rate of 4,000 words per minute. When it gets going like that, not everything it says is particularly helpful. We've all gotten stuck dwelling on the past, worrying about the future, or devolving from introspection into negativity. Experimental psychologist Ethan Cross calls these moments chatter. When the inner voice runs amok and chatter takes the mental microphone, he says, our mind not only torments, but paralyzes us. Luckily, there are tools we can use to take back the mic. Here's Ethan to talk you through them. Hello, BookBite listeners. My name is Ethan Cross. I'm a professor of psychology and management at the University of Michigan and the director of the Emotion and Self-Control Laboratory. I'm also an author. I just finished my first book, Chatter, The Voice in Our Head, Why It Matters, and How to Harness It. I'm excited to share with you five key insights from the book. Insight number one, introspection is a double-edged sword. Beginning around the time that I was five years old, my dad used to tell me to go inside whenever I experienced a problem. The idea was that by turning my attention inward to introspect, I'd be able to find solutions for whatever issues I was struggling with. Growing up, I followed my dad's advice, and by and large, it served me well. Whenever I experienced a dilemma, I'd turn my attention inward reflect on the situation, and come up with a solution for how to respond. That, of course, didn't mean that I always made good decisions. Adolescence was filled with plenty of cringeworthy moments. But going inside, introspecting, became a powerful tool I grew to rely on. Then I got to college, and I took my first psychology course, eager to learn about what science had to say about what I had spent so much time doing growing up, introspecting. That's when I stumbled on what I think is one of the great puzzles of the human mind. On the one hand, I learned that there was indeed value that people derived from introspecting. Some scientists thought that the ability to do so was one of the defining evolutionary advances that distinguished human beings from other species. On the other hand, I also learned that more often than not, people's attempts to use this tool when they're struggling often backfires. Rather than make people feel better, introspection often leads them to experience something else. Chatter. Chatter is a term I use to refer to the cycle of negative thoughts and feelings that turn our capacity for introspection into a vulnerability rather than a strength. We worry, ruminate, and catastrophize, rather than think clearly in ways that allow us to problem-solve, innovate, and create. Why does this happen? Why are some people able to benefit from introspection, while other people get stuck when they do the exact same thing? And equally important, 
Once you find yourself experiencing chatter, what can you do to bring your internal conversations back on track? Those are the questions that I've spent the past 20 years trying to answer. Chatter tells a story of what I've learned. Insight number two, talking to yourself can be helpful if you do it the right way. In 2012, a 14-year-old Pakistani girl received a terrifying message. The Taliban, a well-established terrorist group, was plotting to assassinate her. The Taliban would end up following through on their threat. On her way home from school one afternoon, a terrorist boarded the bus this young girl was traveling home on and shot her in the head. The young girl's name is Malala Yousafzai. Thankfully, she would go on to recover from her attack and two years later become the youngest person to win the Nobel Peace Prize. When asked how she responded when she first discovered the threat against her life, Malala reported saying to herself, If he comes, what would you do, Malala? Then she answered herself, Malala, just take a shoe and hit him. I'd like you to contemplate for a moment Malala's situation. She's just received the most frightening news imaginable. And what does she report doing? She talks to herself, but not the way most of us silently reflect on our lives in the first person. Instead, she talks to herself using her own name and you, words that we typically use when we think about and refer to other people. Many people wonder how they can control their chatter. One way to do so is to use distant self-talk, to coach yourself through a problem using your name and you, like you're advising someone else. This is exactly what Malala did instinctively when she found herself under threat. Research shows that it is much easier for us to advise other people on their problems than it is to advise ourselves. There's even a name for this phenomenon. It's called Solomon's Paradox, named after the Bible's King Solomon, who was famously adept at doling out sound advice to others, but floundered when it came to exercising good judgment in his own life. Distant self-talk capitalizes on this idea. Silently talking to yourself like you're someone else, using you and your own name, helps people take a step back from their experience and put their problems in perspective in ways that enhance their ability to perform under stress, control their emotions, and reason wisely. Research shows this is true not only for adults, but children as well. These and other findings like it demonstrate how subtle shifts in the words we use to refer to ourselves when we introspect can influence how we think, feel, and behave, sometimes in surprising ways. Insight number three, be careful who you talk to. A little over 30 years ago, a Belgian psychologist named Bernard Rimet wanted to understand what people do when they experience the kinds of strong negative emotions that characterize chatter. In study after study, Rimet kept landing on the same result. Negative emotions act like jet fuel that propel people to talk about them. The more intense their feelings, the more people wanted to share. These findings generalized across cultures and proved true regardless of people's age, gender, or education level. The only exceptions were cases in which people experienced certain traumas that they were motivated to avoid or felt shame which they wanted to hide. But alongside this discovery, Rimei also found something else. 
sharing negative experiences didn't help people recover from them. Sure, talking made people feel more supported, but the way that most people commonly talked about their feelings did little to reduce their chatter. It often made it worse. Ramey's findings, and many others like them, contradict popular wisdom, which suggests that venting is helpful. This idea is deeply entrenched in popular culture, yet study after study fails to support it. At best, venting doesn't help us recover from negative experiences. At worst, it exacerbates how bad we feel. The reason this happens is because when we go to other people for help, we have two needs we're trying to fulfill. On the one hand, we're looking for support, which we often get when we share our feelings with others. But we also need advice. We need help broadening our perspective, which other people are in a unique position to help us do. The problem is that many of the people we turn to for help tend to prioritize providing us with emotional support over also giving us advice. To be clear, talking to others about our chatter can be an exceedingly valuable tool, but not any conversation will do. Insight number four, creating order quiets chatter. Rafael Nadal is one of the greatest tennis players of all time. Although he's well known for his speed and power on the court, there's another feature that defines his play, the quirky rituals he engages in. Take, for example, his behavior during a French Open championship match in 2018. As he left the locker room, he walked towards his bench, making sure to carry a single racket in his hand. When he arrived, he took off his warm-up jacket as he faced the crowd and bounced energetically back and forth on the balls of his feet. Then, when he was done, he placed his ID card on his bench, making sure his picture was facing up. His rote behaviors didn't end once the match began. During breaks between play, he sipped his power drink, then his water, always in that order. And when he was done, he returned both bottles exactly where they were before he picked them up, to the left of his chair, one in front of the other, aligned diagonally with the court. Nadal's struggles with chatter aren't a secret. What I battle hardest to do in a tennis match, he once said, is to quiet the voices in my head. And the quirky rituals he engages in provides him with a useful tool for doing just that. It's a way of placing myself in a match, he explains, ordering my surroundings to match the order I seek in my head. Nadal is far from alone in trying to manage his chatter by controlling his physical surroundings. Science shows that many people reflexively engage in similar behaviors when they're struggling with chatter. While some people turn to rituals, others focus on tidying up or organizing their spaces. Importantly, research shows that engaging in these behaviors, as long as they're not taken to an extreme, can provide people with relief. The way this works is through a process called compensatory control. In essence, when our thoughts are racing and feel disorganized, as is often the case when we experience chatter, we can compensate for that by controlling other areas of our lives and engaging in the kinds of rote behaviors that characterize many rituals 
or organizing our spaces provides us with a means of doing precisely that. Insight number five, awe heals. Writing chatter was a lot of fun, but it was punctuated by moments of stress. Interviews that went nowhere, looming deadlines, and feelings of guilt associated with not spending enough time with my family provided me with more than a handful of opportunities to experience firsthand the topic I was writing about. During many of those chatter-filled moments, if the Michigan weather allowed for it, I'd often force myself to go for a walk in the Arboretum near my home, gazing out at the majestic river that coursed through the park and looking at the hundred-year-old trees that dotted its wooded paths filled me with a sense of awe that seldom failed to quiet my chatter. Awe is an emotion we experience when we're in the presence of something vast that we can't explain. Some people feel it when they stare up at the sky and ponder the number of stars in the universe. Others experience it when they look at a great piece of art or watch their kids achieve a momentous feat. I feel it when I take a stroll through nature and contemplate how the physical world came to be. Research shows that experiencing awe doesn't just make us feel good. It provides us with a tool for broadening our perspective in ways that help keep our chatter at bay. When you're in the presence of something vast and difficult to explain, it's hard to maintain the view that you and your chatter are the most important things in the world. When you feel smaller in the midst of awe-inspiring sights, so do your problems. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoy Chatter. Thank you, Ethan. As a podcaster, I do find that talking to myself is something of an occupational hazard, but it's good to know there are tools I can use to direct that self-talk in positive directions. I had the pleasure of chatting with Ethan, see what I did there, on this podcast a few months back. You can hear our conversation by vigorously flicking your thumb to scroll back through the show's feed, or you can follow the link in the episode notes. We have six more Daily Book Bites headed your way. How have you enjoyed this little experiment? Send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. I'm at podcast at nextbigideaclub.com. Mark your calendars, folks. The Next Big Idea returns with a whole bunch of interview episodes on February 24th. And while we'll have to wait a little longer to hear those episodes, you can hear more Book Bites right now. Just go to your phone's app store and search for Next Big Idea. There is no better way to get smart fast. With Book Bites, you can read a book in the time it takes to apply a temporary tattoo. On our next episode, can you get smarter by thinking outside your brain? I'm Rufus Griscom. Talk to you tomorrow.